0: Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Maslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. Many people I talk to struggle to get enough organ meat on a carnivore diet. There's debate about whether you need to eat organs or not, but I like to supplement with organ meats and it makes me feel better. And many carnivores would agree. Optimal Carnivore was created by carnivores for carnivores. In fact, I was consulted during the formulation, which is pretty cool. Um, They have a unique organ complex that combines nine different organs, liver, brain, heart, and more. Um, all from grass-fed, grass-finished animals in New Zealand. And taking six capsules a day is the same as eating an ounce of raw liver. Um, and it's it's completely freeze-dried, and they use a very high-quality process to retain all the nutrients. You can use the link in the episode description or um, the link in my Instagram bio and use the code CARNWAR10 to save a checkout and support the show. Thank you.
1: Tara Vander Dusen and Natalie Haverick. Was that close? Kavorick.
0: Same difference.
1: Kavorick. Tomato,
2: tomato.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kavorik. are an environmentalist, environmental scientist slash dairy farmer and a pharmacist slash rancher who have been sharing their lives and agriculture stories online as a way to build a community around ag and contribute their voices to an industry and lifestyle they're extremely passionate about. They're the host of Discover Ag, a podcast and soon-to-be docu-series that pioneers conversation around relevant and trending topics in agriculture and reconnects us back to the hands that feed us. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. excited. Thanks thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. Um, So yeah, I'd love to hear kind of each of your stories, like what brought you to agriculture and the world of farming and ranching?
3: Yeah. So I'll start Tara here. Um, I'm actually a fifth generation dairy farmer. So I grew up um, on my family dairy in Eastern New Mexico and ended up marrying a fifth generation (laughs) dairy farmer. And so we dairy farm now with his family and our two daughters. Um, my like role on the dairy is a little bit unique. I actually went to school to be an environmental uh, scientist. So I do all of the um environmental consulting work for our dairy and for my clients' dairies. So anything from manure management to um water conservation, just kind of all of that, the environmental side of the dairy. Um, and about seven years ago, I started kind of sharing online just my day to day life um on Instagram. And it grew into, you know, a platform that I never expected and ultimately led me to meeting Natalie online, uh, where we, over the last year and a half, have um, grown our business and our podcast,
2: Discover Ag. So like Tara, I was born and raised in agriculture. I actually grew up in Southwest Montana. So I am a Nebraska transplant, which is where my husband and I ranch now. We have a cow-calf operation. Um, and some other things, but we mostly do cattle. So, um, not mo- I think most people think of Nebraska as corn and crops, and we do not farm. We are just pretty much heavy on the livestock side. Like Tara, um, I started sharing online about five years ago. I also worked part time off the ranch, which is pretty common in agriculture. I'd say for one of the spouses to have an income not drive too you know tied to the operation. And so, I worked as a pharmacist. We had a small critical access hospital. A, located in the small town I live outside of. And so I did that for about two years, um, three years actually. And then I ended up stepping away from that so that I could kind of go all in on, like Tara said, kind of what we do online sharing about agriculture with our podcast um, and then our personal platforms too.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And can you talk a little bit more about the podcast? What was the impetus for it? How did you two meet and kind of what is your goal with that?
3: Well, I'll start with where we met and I'll let Natalie take over kind of what the podcast is about. But um, we met online, (laughs) like I feel like so many people do in this day and age. Like one of the amazing things about Instagram is connecting with people that are like you, but maybe, you know, across the country or across the world. Um, And so at the time, you know, thinking back five years ago, when Natalie started sharing, when I started sharing, there wasn't a ton of women in ag sharing online. And so um, we were kind of like drawn to find, you know, finding each other, seeking each other out, see what... Know just bonding over our shared experiences of sharing online and, um, you know, grew a friendship from there, met in real life for the first time in 2021. And then ultimately, by the end of 2021, we had realized we had a lot of like synergies and uh, similar ideas and just places we wanted to go um, with our businesses and our accounts. And so we kind of teamed up and created the Discover Ag podcast.
2: As far as what we chat about over there, um, it's as you can imagine, all things agriculture. So we, I have been a podcast junkie for a really long time, and Tara too. I've consumed the platform; it's such a really unique platform to be able to, you know, just get in that the ears of people and just really like learn. But I never imagined starting one. Uh, Tara and I, so it kind of happened serendipi- serendipitously, but. We found out really quickly that if you're going to have a podcast, and Scott, I'm sure you will attest to this, you have to be extremely passionate about what you're going to be talking about, you know, week after week after year, year after year after year. And so we started out kind of, you know, one thing Tara and I have built together is a different business called Elevate Ag, which teaches producers, farmers, ranchers to do what we do, which is share online, effectively share their ag story, you know, use social media as an effective marketing tool for the agriculture industry. And that's actually how our podcast started, was pairing it with that. And then we realized that while we're, you know, have a lot of knowledge in that area, we're much more passionate about just kind of using our voice um, to share about agriculture, talk about things going in the industry, and just kind of be thought leaders about different things that are happening in agriculture and also kind of bring it to people who may not be familiar with it. So we that's it kind of evolved. If you scroll back, you'll see old episodes that don't really make sense with what we're doing now. But what we're doing now, we're really passionate about. And basically we just take kind of trending things that are happening in the ag and food space. And then we give our kind of our millennial women's take on agriculture. So it's we try and balance, you know, fun and entertainment with, you know, facts and actual perspectives from people within the agriculture industry of what's actually happening with food and um farming and, and ranching.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And um you kind of brought it up a little bit but who is kind of your target audience and who do you think listens the most like i'm sure i imagine it is some people who are deep in the industry like yourselves who have a lot of experience who love hearing other people passionate about the things they are um but i imagine also it's some people just trying to learn um and and learn a little bit more about agriculture starting from next to nothing
3: yeah, I would say it is like a healthy combination. Obviously, being in ag, we have um, on our personal pages have a significant, significant amount of ag followers. So we definitely see those people over there on the podcast listening and tuning in. Um, but it has been really exciting as we continue to grow and reach outside of agriculture and see the people that are tuning in that have you know nothing to do with ag. I know just this morning, I responded to a DM from someone who said that they were at their daughter's birthday party in New York City. And I was like, oh, I love to see that, that we are like reaching people that are not in ag, that are just food curious, wondering where their food comes from, how it's produced um, and wanting just some information from a farmer's perspective. Uh, and so I feel like that's what we're able to give them.
1: Yeah, and
0: what are some of the topics um, you both enjoy talking about the most? You mentioned like talking about trending topics. What are some things that you've enjoyed talking about recently? You find interesting. You find a lot of engagement around with the audience.
2: Yeah, so one that will probably depending on when it airs. um, We just got done talking about um, meat labeling in the U.S. Some things that have to do with that. We've talked about a lot about dairy um, alternative things that are going on across the seas. We've talked about Denmark, Netherlands, um, Tara. I mean, we just, we cover, so it's such a wide variety.
3: I will say there is always at the, I feel like a lot of our conversation um, at the Rue is around cattle because obviously as a dairy producer and a cattle rancher, a livestock are a big part of our, you know, agriculture lens. Uh, And so we do, while we Bust out and try to talk about all sorts of different topics. There is obviously a lot of conversation in the news around cattle and cattle's impact, you know, on the climate and health benefits and all of those things. And so, those are some of the topics we really love to dive into and get in, you know, kind of get into the weeds of those of what's going on and, and what
2: people need to know. Bill Gates just invested it into um, an Australian company that has to do with cattle feed additives, and so we actually just covered that too. So it it's fun. We like it lights our fire.
0: Yeah, really interesting. I have to start listening to more of these. These all sound like fascinating <laughs> topics. Um and uh can you talk a little bit about I'd like to ask a few questions about kind of the anti-meat narrative um and how that's evolved um from Never my perspective.
1: Heard
0: of it. <laughs> <laughs> from my perspective as like more of a layperson, someone who doesn't really follow the news, um there are still like a bunch of headlines around Veganism, cattle killing the planet, etc. But it feels like it's almost kind of died down from what it was like a few years ago, with like game changers and all these documentaries and people going like maybe people are just more concerned with like the pandemic and AI and other news topics than just in like the chronic news cycle. It's kind of recycled out. <laughs> um, but I'm curious how how you've seen the narrative evolve over the last five, 10
1: years and where you think it is today?
3: I will jump in and say, we've kind of seen something similar that we feel like there's a little like change in the tide, maybe that uh, things are turning around for animal ag that while there are still plenty of headlines out there to address, and, and we cover those in the podcast, there does seem to be somewhat of a movement of people that are like not buying those headlines that are that are kind of pushing back against that narrative. And I think it's really refreshing to see. it'll be I'm curious to see what the next couple of years look like, like how much you know how much more do people want to like dive into that? do they they want to know more about meat and and uh, you know how it's produced and all of that? And so that's kind of um that is a very
2: similar trend of, of what we've been seeing. I also think we're starting to see more vegans and vegetarians speak out about their experience, which I think helps a little bit because before it was kind of the excitement of getting into it. And a lot of them, you know, do feel good right away based off of like lifestyle changes they're making as a complete whole to their life. But now I think you're getting people that are, you know, um, whether it's an emotional thing that they, you know, maybe aren't afraid to speak out anymore or just getting to the point where they're like, okay, two years in, three years in, or whatever it is, and my health is absolutely failing me now. And so I do think there's That are helping kind of stir up a dialogue that maybe just gets people to step back and be like, okay, is this actually you know the best path of choice for my body, for my life, um, and for the environment?
0: Yeah. And do you find, um, I see it in our kind of niche community of like carnivore and keto people, like trying to understand ranchers and farmers more. Um, and I think that's a positive thing. I'm curious what you think, and I'm curious if You think that they are people in the anti-meat movement, vegans in general, or like scientists, politicians, folks who are opposed to meat. Do you feel like they are trying to connect with and
1: understand the voice of farmers and ranchers?
3: I think my opinion on that is like my overarching opinion is kind of, no, I don't think that people are always willing to like kind of reach across the aisle or in this case, like reach across, you know, the country out to like rural places like Nebraska, New Mexico, where we're have the livestock and go out and see what it's really like. I mean, I think one of the things, and Natalie can touch on this as a cattle rancher, like People don't even realize that most of our beef spends a majority of their life out on rangeland, you know, grazing cattle. That is the majority of our beef here in the country, even though it is grain finished. And so there's just these huge disconnects. And so I do think they go in, you know, with what, for whatever reason, they've gotten an agenda and they're going to like kind of stick to their guns about it and not necessarily open to having conversations and learning more and, and kind of seeing the other side. So
2: I'll kind of disagree with that a little bit. I do think COVID has done has been a little bit of a shift to make people maybe a little bit more interested in where their food has come from. You mentioned, you know, the pro-meat diets. And I do feel like when I tune into those podcasts, I will hear um interesting, because most of them are trying to source, you know, the best. If that's what they're eating solely, a lot of them are gonna be trying the best source of what they consider in their mind or questions around like what's the best source of meat we can you know provide or you know get source for our, for our family and so i do think they are trying to connect more with ranchers i do think they're trying to source you know from locally or maybe you know direct to consumer beef companies and with that i do think comes like getting to know the rancher more maybe having awareness around oh, okay connecting with the the person or the behind the food source um as far as the opposite side i feel like In my personal opinion, and I think this is actually part of the changing shift trends, as you mentioned, you know, like politicians or celebrities or bigger names like wanting to reach out. I don't know if they ever truly stood behind those, you know, that diet or that lifestyle. Sometimes I wonder if they just knew it was what was like trending isn't the right word, but maybe like what the mass consumers were interested in. And I feel like they, some people take advantage of that and just position themselves to like stand behind that or use that in their verbiage or stand behind that. You know, headline or tagline, and then you know now that that's maybe trending in the opposite direction. Will they be reaching out? No, but I think that I think they just like aren't caring as much either way anymore. It's kind of like, okay, what's the new thing that I should get behind in support of? You know, the mass the mass consumers or the public that's going to care about what I care about.
3: I'm actually really glad Natalie broke that into two groups because I do agree with you there. I think like the politicians Natalie and I share a lot about how sometimes like the shareholders of big companies have one opinion about how they want to see food and and different things ingredients move and like people buying products feel a different way. And so I do think that the average consumer probably, as Natalie mentioned, because of COVID, does have more of an interest in food. It's, But it's more like the policymakers or you know the shareholders of companies that I think might still be out of touch with the food industries.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And um, I want to talk about some of the biggest
0: myths you see. And I think one small one we can start with, this one's a little more niche. Uh, but Natalie, you mentioned um people on like pro meat podcasts talking about getting what they think is the best source of meat. So I want to dig into that. What did you mean by that comment? I think I know what you mean, but I'd like to hear what you what you were thinking there.
2: Yeah, so um your listeners may or not be aware of, you know, the sort of regenerative agriculture or um and I think underneath that falls like grass-fed beef or grain-fed beef. Um I am not against the word regenerative agriculture. I would say that that's what we practice here at our operation um i just think it there's a, a spectrum of it and i think obviously the more we talk about it and the more we have dialogue and conversation around it you know the more we become aware of it my biggest fear with um people using the word regenerative agriculture is that it it's a yes or no you know that people would look at our operation and say you're well you're either you know regenerative and you're doing it um you know what we think is the best um, or you're not. And uh, you recently, you have, you interviewed Jeff Smith. He's a Colorado rancher. I really admire him. He's talked, he went on the Neat Mafia Boy podcast and I felt he did a really good job of explaining, you know, that the soil in Nebraska is not going to be different than the soil in Nebraska is going to be different than the soil in Georgia. And so, you know, the rainfall in uh, New Mexico is going to be different than the rainfall in, you know, uh, Washington, you know, whatever it is, all these different things that we take into, effect as ranchers, um, it's gonna be different everywhere. And so this idea that regenerative ag is a simple definition or a one size fits all or a yes or no just really isn't true. Um, you know, our job as ranchers is to make the best choices for our operation based off all the different things um to be regenerative. And so I do, I'm happy people are using it and tuning more into it and um getting interested in it. I just, I just some fear comes with it. Um About the term, as far as getting into like grass fed versus grain fed, it's kind of like I mean we can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but I think there's a lot to be said about it.
1: Yeah,
0: and and I've had Jeff talk about it too. He's actually been on the podcast like four times. Uh, He's he's a good friend from Colorado Craft Beef um, and others. But yeah, let's let's talk about it again. Um, I think it's it's something that's a, a common myth that people don't fully understand. Like those terms are used very. Um, liberally, grass-fed, grass, grass-finished, grain-fed, can you talk about some of the differences there and why grass-finished um, beef may not always be, um, or, or excuse me, why grain-fed beef or grass-finished beef um, may not always be more um, environmentally friendly or healthier or even viable um, in certain circumstances.
3: Yeah, so there's a lot of places we could take this, but I feel like the first place my mind goes, you mentioned like environmentally friendly. Um, the carbon footprint from for beef from a feedlot is actually lower than grasslands, which I think points to how complicated this issue is. That you know we we set these co- uh, climate goals and these you know carbon goals. And in actuality, it's such a more complicated system than that. You know, there's benefits of having cattle grazing on grasslands that has nothing to do with the CO2 emissions it ha- or the methane emissions. It has to do with the biodiversity and, and the benefit that cattle play to these marginal, you know, grasslands. Um, I think then, you know, it gets into that a lot of our cattle, as we already stated, like are out on grasslands, spend a majority of their life on grasslands before being finished in a feedlot. Um, And then another thing that Natalie and I have covered on the podcast before is, you know, uh, the amount of beef that we import that is um, grass fed and grass finished um, comes from New Zealand and Australia and different countries where the climate may be more suitable to having grasslands than, you know, the entire United States. Um, Natalie mentioned differences between countries or sorry, between states. New Mexico, and we talked before we got on the podcast. You've been there. It is not exactly known for its like rolling green hills where we're able to graze tons and tons of cattle. It's pretty limited, pretty sparse land. So there's just instances where providing cattle with a different feed source can be actually beneficial, Um, like from the dairy side um, on our dairy, we're able to feed cattle a number of different byproducts that would otherwise end up in landfills. Uh, And so just because it's not grass doesn't mean like it's bad. You know, we work with a nutritionist to plan their diets, make sure they're getting a well-balanced meal. They still get grasses, even though they're in pens and corrals. Uh, And so it's just a more complicated system, I think, than most people
2: realize within beef and dairy one thing Tara and I really stand for is food choice. Um and so if you were to look at and kind of what Tara is saying is if you're to look at, you know, grain finished grain um yeah, uh, grain finished versus grass-fed. Um it's a spectrum, right? There's pros and cons to each. And I think at the end of the day, um we're probably in agreement with a lot of your audience that meat is just one of the healthiest most nutritious things we can put in your body and so I feel fortunate that we have the option for people who care about having, you know, the the pros of grass fed that they can source out and and do grass fed and the people who care about maybe the pros of, you know, grain finished and choose that for their family have the option to, you know, go out and source that. And so I think at the end of the day the most important thing when we step back is that we're just getting meat in the diet. And, you know, from the environmental standpoint, there are going to be pros and cons to the grass grass finished versus grain finished um and then there's also going to be when it comes to nutrition, there's not Totally. I mean, there are minute differences, but not major ones. And so I just think whatever choice you want to make that's best for your family is, you know, go ahead and make it as long as you're putting meat on the plate.
0: Completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well said. Um, and what are some of the other big myths that you think still persist around meat and in, in the anti-meat narrative or misinformation about dairy farming, cattle ranching um, that that you like to talk about?
3: one of the ones that Natalie and I love to talk about is kind of the word factory farming. Um I feel like that word gets thrown around a ton when in reality um I'll let Natalie cover the beef side but in the dairy side 98% of all dairies are family owned and operated. Um and that just because farms are bigger, you know, even family farms that are bigger, like big doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean that like there's not great animal welfare standards that they're not doing everything to, you know, protect the environment. And so there's just a ton of conversation around there. I also think for whatever reason people like to us, not assume or just put characteristics on plant-based that it's not factory or industrialized. And but if you've ever seen some of the, you know, vegetables that we love to consume being harvested, it is very much like an industrial process. You know, pr- harvesting millions of tons of potatoes or onions or whatever it is. I think people think for Those reasons, those specialty crops are like smaller, more localized when that's not necessarily the case. And that's not to say those are bad. I just think that there is like a disproportionate emphasis put on factory farming for cattle compared to other pieces of the ag system.
2: Yeah. Tara said it best when she said that often when we think of our food, we think, bigger is better and smaller is better. And that's just not the case. There could be a really large operation that is doing a better job than a smaller operation and there could be a smaller operation that's not managing their cattle and they're actually you know eating up their grasslands and doing a worse job than the the larger one. And so I would love if I could see our food system move away from that narrative that, you know bigger is bad. Uh, you know machinery is bad. I think we all still have kind of that idealic picture of like the old red barn and a farmer out hand milking and i just don't understand why that's more appealing than like maybe having you know technology involved where it's made it more safer and it's more regulated and controlled and you know whatever that technology brings it's like for some reason i feel like in every other sector in the united states um or and i guess maybe you know in any nation you know technology is always seen as like a good thing welcome to the industry and when it comes to food for some reason i feel like it brings so much fear around like what that does to the food and it
1: just doesn't make sense to me Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's definitely an emotional topic
0: um, for people in so many ways. It's funny
2: you say that because I was just listening to another podcast. Um, We actually interviewed her. She's going to be coming up on mine. She's uh, our podcast. She's a research. um, She's out of Colorado State, and she does research there. And she said that the food industry is the only industry where emotion is on the same level as science and i think that's really interesting because it's so true that um a lot of times science rules everything but for some reason when it comes to our food or the environment or whatever it is it's like emotion has just as much weight as science which makes it really really hard when you're coming at things from like a science point um, yeah. to combat the emotion
0: yeah how do you how do you both like to deal with that when people come to you and they're very emotionally charged about a topic surrounding um Farming, ag, ranching. How do you how do you think about that?
3: Um, so I feel like there's like two different types of people. There's the people that have an agenda and don't really want an answer. They don't aren't looking for an answer. They're coming to your page to just leave a comment and kind of give their two cents. And then there's the people that genuinely have a question. And so I feel like kind of figuring out the difference like spotting the differences between those. And then I feel like when people have a genuine question, a lot of times the root question really is like all the same. It's like that they want to know their food is safe, right? They they want to know it's nutritious. And so I feel like kind of stripping it of its emotion and getting down to like what the actual point is and then trying to come back, you know, like, warm and welcoming to questions. I think as farmers and ranchers, we can come off really defensive and the internet doesn't help. You know, text never, you know, lots is lost in text messaging and not having audio and emotion in there. And so trying to come back like fairly open to having dialogues with people. Um, And so I, I just, I think there's, you know, you have to take each comment as it comes and then kind of go into it with that attitude.
1: And do you feel like there are, um, Tara, like specific myths to dairy um, that you
0: hear a lot about?
3: I know Natalie's probably laughing because we talk a lot. Like dairy gets hit, I think, even harder than beef a lot of times. Really interesting. Yeah, I think um, dairy. It, it definitely is like a, a more targeted part of animal agriculture beyond even beef um, and cattle ranching. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about dairy. Um, someone like off the top of my head is like, you know, antibiotics and milk. Like there's no antibiotics in any milk on the shelf. Like it's tested to the parts per trillion. And no matter how many times you say that, like you still get that question, that comment. Um, some of the problems I feel like we've kind of created, um, like the RBST, like no milk on the shelf in the United States has RSP, RBST. It's no longer like it's outlawed. Um, and even before it was outlawed, like I was thinking it was something like 98% of farmers didn't use it. Like it was very, <laughs> nobody was using it. Um, and so, you know, that was like kind of like a self-created problem, I guess we started using a product. Consumers didn't like it. So we stopped using it. It was pretty much as simple as that. and um, So those are some of the big, you know, I feel like targets as far as the actual product goes. And then from there, it's, you know, breaks down into conventional versus organic, grass fed versus conventional, like similar to um, beef.
1: It's really interesting you bringing up the um,
0: RBST. Um, So my wife and I have this... this joke that we make, it's like a stupid joke, but like when we buy produce from the store and you know, sometimes you get like fruit, that's just like massive or like zucchinis or something. And you're like, Oh, so we'll say to each other, like, wow, look at these all natural zucchinis, (laughs) like making a joke that like, clearly they're, they're not. But then I was thinking about that yesterday. I was like, what does that actually mean? Like the word natural, it's this buzzword that people are obsessed with. But like, you know, if you get, say like a turkey leg from the store and it's clearly like or or chicken breasts and they're huge, right? They're they're clearly there's something different than these chickens than like the average chicken that evolved however many years ago. But maybe they've just been selectively bred that way. Or maybe they they are using hormones to grow the chicken, but like is that necessarily a bad thing? So I guess how do you think about some of those practices that make like like create more Food um and people having this attachment to natural,
3: yeah, I think people do have a big attachment to the word natural, and I always laugh because I'm like arsenic is natural too, and it's wiped off and wiped out plenty of populations. Um, but like, if you think about where corn came from, it like just you could use any vegetable actually, or any like. We have selectively bred lots of things to provide more food. A banana, if you look at the origins of a banana tree, it does not look like our bananas do today. Um, And that's going to be across the board because of, you know, selecting the breeding patterns. I,
2: you brought, for me, when you bring this up, it, it sets me into the whole kind of territory of food labels, which Tara and I will joke all the time on our podcast that like food labels, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. You know, it's like, what would a world be like without them? But the world with them right now is just extremely confusing and overwhelming. Yeah. And I don't... So there are labels that I don't even know. I. I mean, I obviously source might be from our own cattle ranch and so I'm not shopping in like the protein sector a ton. Um but the other day I picked up chicken in the store and there was a couple labels on there that I was like I don't even know what this is talking about. Luckily because I'm close to my food source I don't fear my food source, you know. So I was like, well these labels are probably, you know, or who knows what was behind them, but they didn't instill fear in me, but that it makes me just, you know, Empathize for the people who aren't as close to their food source, and so they do fear have questions about it. Because I, if I didn't, I probably would be like at this. I probably would have walked away from the meat sector without it because I was like these labels, whatever, you know, they just they weren't helpful. They were confusing and scary. And so I always just like to, you know, encourage people that the closer you can get to your food source, the more you know about your food source, the less fear you will have about it, whether you actually understand what the label means or recognize it as just like a gimmick, you know, like oh, that I. You know, whatever that says, whatever that means, I know that you know, chickens don't have the hormones or the milk doesn't have their s b t or whatever it is, because I know that and whatever this label is trying to invoke in me, you know, you're not gonna fall for it.
1: Yeah, that's
0: a really good point about invoking emotions through food labels. <laughs> I feel like in a lot of ways they are manipulating people's emotions. Um, like even like the whole it's still going on, but years ago, like labeling everything gluten-free, like this is gluten-free water. This is gluten-free chicken breast. <laughs> like you're just trying to capture people's like, uh, it's, um oh, what is the term for it? It's like green something. Um, greenwashing. Greenwashing. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. I saw a Twitter post the other day that was talking about the GMO and I feel like I don't want to speak for all of agriculture, but I do feel like that's one Label or the gluten free, sorry, um, well even GMO too, because they'll stick that label on things that can't even, I mean, don't have GMO at all to begin with either. And um, same thing, like you said with gluten. And so there, when you're in agriculture, some there are people that are like, I specifically shop for products that don't have that label on it because I feel like it is greenwashing, like it's totally misappropriating, you know, the use of it. Um, and they just don't really stand for it again because they know the food source and they kind of understand like what that like sure it's gluten free but it was never you can't even have gluten in it you know same thing for gmo sure it's gmo free but there is no even gmo source of that you know possible on the planet and so like why is the label on there like what's the point
3: um on the flip side of that the co-op that we send our milk to is a part of the co-op that started fairlife milk and it I, I at some point i don't know if it still does but i feel like there was a gluten free like label on the milk and we were like we kind of fought back on it and we're like, that's ridiculous. We don't need a gluten-free label on milk. And they were like, if you saw the emails we got, you would see why we added that label. And it was kind of like, okay, so if you don't have it and people mm-hmm. aren't aware, are you going to be like missing out like on marketing opportunities? So it's, it's like a double-edged sword that it's ridiculous. But at the same time, if people don't know,
2: they don't know. I actually had that exact conversation with the direct-to-consumer beef company because they're like, I feel so silly saying like no antibiotics ever and like whatever, you know, all natural, like whatever their three other claims were, but they're like every other direct-to-consumer that we're competing with has those labels. And if we don't put those labels on, then the consumers are going to question, like, why aren't we all natural? Why are we using, you know, whatever they were. And so you're right. It is like this marketing tactic that's been completely skewed where it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like if you don't put the labels on, then it's problematic. But if you do, you know you're kind of contributing to like perpetuating a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's you you have to play the game, unfortunately. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're like a small direct to consumer or you know, like these people that are just trying to, you know, that they're not the larger, um, I guess like behind larger producer means in agriculture.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like direct to consumer the move to more direct to consumer and like the pandemic? has been helpful for ranchers or operations that want to like start up and sell in that way or do you think um it hasn't really benefited them and it's more so benefited like larger operations
2: No I think it's beneficial I definitely see more people more operations getting into it that's actually how I started online was I had launched a direct to consumer with my friend Anyone who's a direct to consumer will tell you the margins are very tight. It's very hard to do. It's not fit yeah. for every operation. Um, and Jeff has actually talked about this before. I don't, um, I don't know if he mentioned it on any of the episodes you did with him, but I feel like the best way you're gonna do direct to consumer is if you like go all in on direct to consumer. And so I think the people that maybe they have a new generation coming back to the operation where they need to figure out how that, you know, the operation as is can't sustain another family member or another family. Well, maybe if they had direct to consumer, it could. And so I think options like that where they go really gung-ho into it, yeah. it works for them and it's been a benefit. I think for producers that are trying to maybe like dabble in it or see like, well, I'll just sell off, you know, the extras that don't, or like whatever that looks like, it's not gonna work as well. Like it hasn't been as beneficial to that operation then.
0: Yeah, I learned, I worked closely with Belcampo Campo. Um, and it seems like they kind of collapsed. Yeah. And they were threading both the uh, retail, restaurant, and online direct-to-consumer
1: at the same time.
3: Yeah, that's a lot of like balls in the air. Um, I feel like kind of on the flip side, like I always get asked online if we, you know, bottle our own milk. And it's like, no, that wasn't like, I know... That's not an interest in my husband at all to be, you know, operate like a farm store or mm. figure out how to bottle it and then distribute it. Um, even with Fairlife, you know, we ended up partnering with Coca-Cola, which was super controversial because we were like a grassroots organization, you know, grassroots brand Fair Life. It was started by 99 Dairy Farm Families, but we needed help distributing it. Like That was just like the truth of it, that we were not a, distri- a distribution company. We were <laughs> local farmers in New Mexico that were trying to get this brand to be, you know, it It is now a national brand trying to get it across the country. And so um, it's not every farmer's like goal or dream to have to deal with like kind of that side of the business that they'd have to market their product and figure out how to distribute it and all of the things that go into that. Um, And so I think that's, I think it's incredible when people want to buy direct to, from the farm and from the ranch. And on the flip side of that, I'm also like, you know, my milk goes to the basic cheese on the shelf like you can feel good about no matter what your food choice is.
2: I will say for anyone tuning in that does buy direct to consumer though thank you for doing that because for the families that are like that is a passion of theirs that is something they want to bring to their operation again those margins are slim and so it really does make a difference when you are buying um from direct to consumer because it's not an easy business. Yep.
0: Yeah, one thing I've asked, you know, everyone I've had on from you know, uh, white oak pastures to Jeff, to every, every type of rancher I've had on the show is like, how can people get more involved and support, um, the ranching and and farming community? Um, and I'd love to hear that from both of your perspectives, because I think you'll have
1: interesting answers.
3: So I would say a couple of things, um, as Natalie mentioned, I think like buying there, if somebody has a direct to consumer beef business and that's something you want or direct to consumer pork or whatever it is, and that's something that's passionate, a lot of passion for you, find someone and and source it from, you know, the, a farmer a rancher, you know, um, Also, just, you know, there's lots of farmers sharing online nowadays. And I know I even follow tons of farmers that are outside of the cattle industries because I love to learn about agriculture. Um, But then when you have a question, you have someone that you can turn to and ask. You can bring up these conversations and you can ask them, you know, the tough questions when something arises for you.
2: I'll echo that. I mean, I think you can financially support a farmer. You can emotionally support a farmer. I think it goes a long way. When uh, people start taking interest in their food and questioning maybe mainstream headlines or conversations they're having at dinner tables or something they overheard at the, you know, coffee shop wherever it is, um, I feel like that is a really good way to support a farmer is to maybe start bringing the nuance into the conversation that you know only we can bring into it.
1: Yeah, um, and I guess how how do both of you like to? Dispel or like educate
0: I think educate is the word I'm looking for. Educate folks who think meat is awful, meat is bad for the environment, my vegan diet is saving the environment. How do you go about educating them in a productive and like, you know, non-demeaning type way <laughs> um, like what's what's
1: your preferred way to explain that
2: through our podcast?
1: <laughs> no. You just sent them um, to the podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it is hard. Um I think it goes back to answering what kind of what Tara said is like stripping kind of emotion out of it and getting down. I mean not, I think it's important to bring emotion though cuz sometimes if you come into a conversation just with the stats and the facts and like ready to go from that angle um you you lose people without the emotion too so it's like this balance. I used to advocate pretty heavily on my personal page um on Instagram I devoted a lot of my time and energy to that it was something really important to me and it still is but um I think that ebbs and flows and it ebbs and flows on how you do it too so you know sometimes I'll make a reel that you know is more fact based and you know is maybe me you know, holding a sign that has stats and information and maybe sometimes it's just you know casually sharing something in the caption with um a reel of my family so that they can connect it to the food source I think I think it's important that we bring all the different ways into the conversation, you know, when we're trying to share more about agriculture, whether it's from a science-based, you know, standpoint or that emotional standpoint.
3: Yeah. And I'll add, I think sometimes, I feel like there's different ways to approach this. I feel like I tend to be more fact-based and have like advocate pretty hard. And then I see other accounts that are the way they advocate is by simply like showing you the day-to-day life on their farmer ranch. And that's enough, like just showing what's going on and, and, And even I've had videos where I've just shared what we're doing. And I've had comments that are like, well, where can I buy your milk? And it's like, our farm is just like an average American farm. You know, like we're not really anything special. You could buy our milk by just going to the grocery store. Um, And so just by opening yourself up and just showing that day-to-day life goes a really long way. And then, you know, adding in those facts, like Natalie said, um, I think just like improves the conversation, gives you credibility there um, and just kind of backs up what you're obviously sharing.
1: What
0: are some of the facts you hear, um, and and how do you what do you counter them with?
3: <laughs> I would say a big one um, in the cattle world is like you know the headlines that are kind of like you know cattle are the main contributor of greenhouse gas emissions, and in actuality, in the United States, cattle account for less than four percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Like there, you know, that is probably one of the biggest ones around the environment when transportation energy. Um, the major sectors account for eighty percent of greenhouse gas emissions. It's pretty far stretched when you see the headlines saying that you know, cattle are the number one
1: problem, yeah. And um, like do you when you someone do you go towards educating people around like the
0: impact of the other food they're eating too? Like the fact that if you're eating a vegan diet, a lot of those foods that you know, you're eating to get all this plethora of vegetables and avocados and nuts, those require a certain environmental impact as well?
3: So I, yes, I do. Um, One of the things that I like to talk about is, you know, if you are choosing like a milk alternative that doesn't have as much protein as cow's milk, you're going to have to consume more food a different food source to get that protein. So by default, you're increasing your greenhouse gas emissions, like carbon footprint for your food, because you're going to multiple sources in order to get like the equivalent of cow's milk. Um, But I do try to tread lightly on this topic because I feel like all of ag, I don't have anything against almond farmers, even though they produce almond milk, you know? And so I do think that we do have to have these comparison conversations because there is this like, myth out there. that are like, you know, cattle, cattle use all the water and cattle are bad. And it's like all food uses water resources, you know, has an impact on our environment. And, um, so not necessarily trying to pit one against each other, just having like a frank conversation that all food uses natural resources.
2: Yeah, like Tara said, I think it can be tricky because when you're in agriculture, um the last thing you want to do is like slam down another <laughs> sector of agriculture. It's kind of the same thing when it comes for me and like my cattle out grazing. You know, I could say how much more beneficial that is than like the row crop farmer, you know, that's maybe creating the soy that goes into the soy burger they're eating. Um but at the same time like I Agriculture isn't big enough to be against agriculture. And so if my platform is going to be like slamming down, you know, another way that we operate to get food into the house, you know, homes across the nation and, and across the world with exportation, um, that I'm not doing, you know, I that just can't be my sole stance. Um, like Tara said, I think it's important to have that part of the conversation. Unfortunately, you know, agriculture understands that it's like trying to get the everyday consumer that is a little bit removed from it to to like look at things with that broader lens um but it always makes me a little bit uncomfortable if i have to like point out and blame other sectors you know cuz it's just there are pros and cons for our food system right so yeah. the people that are doing it at scale that's what gives us the affordability that's what gives us you know the um the ability to have it fast and quick and at large scale. Um, and so we just, it's its hard to point fingers and say, they're doing it wrong, we're doing it right, because we have to put food on the table at the end of the day. And it's going to take a bunch yeah. of different ways to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I
0: appreciate that. I think you're doing the right thing by not pitting <laughs> different parts <laughs> of the agricultural community against each other. <laughs> um, it's only going to result in more negative things.
2: Right. Which is why going back to like grass fed versus grain fed, I'm always like, just it, you know, it doesn't matter. My family, you know, we're conventional. So we'll finish um, like my, the beef we raise here will go into, you know, the beef supply chain. It would go into a feedlot and then eventually into restaurants or grocery stores. Um, But that doesn't mean that I'm not for, I have so many friends that are doing grass fed finish and I'll direct every single person I can to them to do that DTC from them. Um, You know, it's not, it's just not better or worse. It's just different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um I forget what I was gonna ask. Um, oh around around the idea of um one thing I hear people say a lot is like but the world couldn't um
0: sustain everyone eating this amount of beef per day. Um what do you what do you say to that? Like the idea that there is a limit on the amount of um, animal animals we can produce and eat because of like the amount of lands or the amount of resources or water
1: that people think we need um, to create an ecosystem of animal agriculture. Oh, Natalie, I was going to let you take that one. That's okay. Yeah, I can take it. Um,
2: so I guess when I... When this gets brought up there's two things that come to mind for me one is that ruminants are actually the only thing that are adding to the food system um and that is because they are taking they're upcycling essentially so they're taking grass things that you know we cannot consume as humans um byproducts they're taking up actually 86% of what we feed cattle is non-edible to humans so not only are they you know taking that that food source out of um you know landfills or you know not going anywhere um they're turning into food. So they're actually adding to the the food um, system, I guess, as a whole. Um, as far as like, you know, arable versus non-arable land, um, the people, documentaries love to talk about how, you know, cattle are using, you know, whatever large percentage of the land it is. We're like we're giving that all the way to grazing animals. And if we just took it away, then, you know, what whatever they want to do with it, we'd be able to. But there's a They always leave out that the cattle are there for a reason. It's because that's the only thing that land can be used for. Um, You know, it's either too rocky, too steep, too hilly, there's not enough water, like whatever it is. You know, our ranch is a really great example of that. We're in an area known as the Nebraska Sandhills. And if you follow me on my personal page, you'll see this summer that I'm out on horseback moving cattle in an area that. Could not be planted. Like we could not put crops there. You could not grow anything there. The sand, it's called sandhills because the soil is actually sand. So it's not really great for growing. But what it is great for is cattle. It is phenomenal what cattle have done to our ecosystem in the Nebraska sandhills. And so I think that's, you know, those two points are what I bring into the conversation is that cattle are actually upsizing and then they're turning that grasslands that couldn't be used for anything else into um, beef that we can't eat. So you're saying you're not growing avocado trees in Nebraska, Natalie? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I don't want to switch anytime soon. My king <laughs> thumb is not very good. Yeah, I think that that is a big part of the conversation. Also, ruminant animals are the only animals that actually make protein. I know Natalie said like that they're contributing to our food system, but they are the only like organism on the planet that actually makes protein, which is obviously a really important piece of this entire conversation from a nutrition standpoint. Probably one of the reasons we all love beef and dairy so much is that, you know, those nutrients that we have to get from them. Um, And so I think that 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 piece has to be there as well, that nutrition side of things. We can talk about sustainability and all of these things, but we ultimately need to be getting nutrition
2: to live, you know, our optimal lives. That's one thing, and I've been actually talking a lot about is like on this quest for sustainability as a nation, are we, you know, losing the nutritional standpoint about it? Like where are we positioning ourselves um, nutritionally in this quest for sustainability?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something folks in the carnivore community do well is talking about, you know, you're creating a lot of suffering and disease by denying people, um, access to, to meat, bioavailable protein, bioavailable nutrients. Um, and, you know, there's interesting research that um, infants and babies who aren't exposed to adequate levels of vitamin A and other nutrients that you'll find most commonly in meat um, are more likely to develop autism or things like that. So it's, it's kind of like this ethical, it creates another ethical dilemma of like, is it really right to deny us? you know, a proper life (laughs) um, by eating vegan or whatever.
2: A hundred percent. I think any conversation that talks about removing nutrition from the food system is extremely irresponsible given, um, I mean, even in the U.S., I think we generally think of us as being a food secure nation, which we are, and also, you know, like a a healthy nation we are we are, you know, from a general standpoint. But I think if you get down to the nitty gritty details, like we still have, you know, iron deficiency, it's it's rampant in the US. I mean, we still have a lot of health concerns. We're, you know, caloric positive and, you know, nutrition negative. And so I yeah. think that talking about removing, you know, like Tara said, one of the things that provides our ultimate source of protein is just really irresponsible, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you both for
0: coming on, Natalie and Tara. It's Great to meet you both, hear more about you. I have a lot of listening to do. <laughs> I'm really excited to dig in more to the podcast. Um, and oh, I wanted to ask what's going on with the docu series? Um, what is that? What are you doing there?
3: Yeah, so we in the fall filmed um, our pilot episode of our docu series, and it is, you know, kind of conversations like this where we were able to go out to a farm, um, ranch, all sorts of, you know, each episode we'd be focusing on a different commodity, a different crop, a different sector of agriculture, uh, and be able to talk with the farmer and really bring that to people. I'll get their questions answered, see what it actually takes. Um, in this pilot episode, we cover cotton. So what does it actually take to get, you know, from a seed in the ground to the cotton that we wear and use every single day? What are the challenges those farmers face? What are the exciting opportunities? that maybe are coming up for them. Um, how has the industry changed over the years? And um, so more to come on that, but we're in a really exciting
2: place with that.
0: Cool. And where else can folks find you? I'll have links to everything in the podcast show notes.
2: Well, anyone tuning in um, is probably a podcast person. So we'll first and foremost, just direct you over to our podcast, Discover Ag. And then from there, you can probably find us anywhere um, too. But our for anyone listening who wants to know right now, um, our two main social platforms are Instagram and so the podcast and Instagram. And so Taras at Tara Van Dusen and then I'm at Natalie Kavoric.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you both very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, can't wait to share this with folks.
3: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having us on. This was fun.
0: If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered, or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CarnivoreCast, or go to CarnivoreCast.com. You can also email me at info at I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.